Hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. As is our custom, I have uh, a small page worth of notes here. I'm so happy you do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, I ask you, as I always do, do you have any topics you want to float initially? Mm, only to only to reassert that the voice in your head is not something that you are, and I mean you generally to all of our listeners out there, the voice in your head is not something that you are doing. It's something that's happening to you. And when you really get that, uh, that changes everything. Very good. And now I will turn it over to you. <laughs> so... One of my co-workers is Indian, although actually he's an American. Let's, let's be fair about this. What kind of an Indian? Uh, subcontinent, subcontinental Indian. Oh, okay. So he's from the nation of India. Yeah. Uh, and he is part of a movement. Now, if, ah, I am unusually unprepared here. I emailed this stuff to myself, and I don't actually have it up in front of me. So <laughs> let us digress a little bit for a minute. Okay. Um, yeah. Anyway, he, as many of my co-workers do, have a sense that I have, through my many years of toiling away with Noble Ape, uh, a, a slightly better understanding of the human condition than the average monkey. Uh, and he will oftentimes talk to me about his experiences, sometimes his dreams, sometimes aspects of things that he's reading. Particularly, he's very big on um, reading kind of, not necessarily New Age, but certain like divisions of the mind, certain ideas associated with extroverts and introverts. He'll read mm. these treaties that, you know identify components in the brain and then kind of break down where the various people through history mm -hmm. have them. Yeah. You know, this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, got, I, I find that stuff interesting, too. I went through a period <laughs> reading a lot of that stuff. So the movement that he is part of currently is called The Art of Living, which um, originally comes from India, but actually has formed a movement here. Uh, nice and name. <laughs> <laughs> and recently, let me, this is actually from his hand, I will paste into the chat so you can look at the, their various propaganda. Um, but he went to a, I don't know what you'd call it, I guess a, a welcoming session. Oh, what's this guy's, uh, yeah, this guy's sort of famous. I mean, I've seen, I mean, I've seen his picture a lot. I mean, I recognize him immediately. Yes. So, yeah. So anyway, I started, we were talking about the, as as you as you started this very discussion, the the Heronstone primitive, the notion that um, you know the voice inside your head is not you, but more importantly, that you should tame to aim to eliminate that voice inside. Oh your no head. no 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 no! Not eliminate it. Just uh, break the identification with it. It's a fabulous tool uh, when we're running the show and not it. It's, it's a lousy commander, but a great servant. <laughs> Well, that's interesting because I've always I've always advocated your view, or in fact, tried to embody it myself in terms of the elimination of the internal ah, voice. No, 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 not at all. Uh, it actually, when you begin to study it and when you listen to it seriously, it has a strange habit of shutting up. 
when you're trying to study it. It's kind of interesting. So that's one of the things that happens uh, is you can gain a, a measure of control over that. But it's once you break the identification with it, it's it's just it can do what it wants. You know, it's it's just there. It's commenting on stuff, and uh, occasionally it's quite useful. So. The point that he tried to emphasize with regards to this group, they had a gathering of about 9,000 people in the city of San Jose, I think, last weekend. Wow. Uh, this is the stressfreeviolencefree.org, uh-huh. which is the local campaign. Yeah. And he said a majority of the folk that attended were subcontinental Indians. And he says the, the problem that the movement is facing currently is although they're able to get um, support from community leaders, in this case the police, um, these kind of organisations, they are having trouble identifying themselves as a secular entity, in large part because... Because of their association with this guru guy, right? (laughs) Well, there's there's an element of mysticism in there. Yeah, sure. I I said... um, So we went through some of these things, including the the nature of the... um, you know, the internal narrative, whatever one might yeah. want to call it. And I said that certainly in terms of my interactions with you, uh, I mean, some of your uh, background reading and interest comes from kind of Eastern mysticism. Oh, yeah, I meditated like for, I mean, I still meditate, mm-hmm. but I mean, I did it solidly for probably 15 years. Mm. It is interesting because we then talked about Terence McKenna, Mm-hmm. Because I said certainly in terms of the groups that I am part of, I mean, to state once again, I do not feel in terms of chemical substance as part of the psychedelic community, but I'm certainly sympathetic to aspects of, you know, descriptions of underlying psychology and also yeah, a, yeah. a number of the elements. Yeah. I yeah. think the important point, which is something that we've talked about previously, is that I think you can get to many of the states discussed without actual... You know, without drugs, yeah. chemistry. Oh, that's what McKenna used to say, but he said he found that a, a terrifying thought, that if he could get into those places without drugs, he would check into a hospital. Mm. <laughs> but then again, then again, drugs, well, at least until the mid-80s, <laughs> drugs had been his m- means of getting to those places. If he had been given other means of getting yeah. to those places, it may have been a different Well, I don't story. think they're really the same place either. I mean, they're... I mean, not only do I not think, I assert they are not. The, I mean, even the, the space you go into from one trip to the next is not the same space. The same person taking the same drug on two occasions has a different experience. Certainly. And uh, so the idea that you can get to the same space as DMT or LSD or marijuana or anything by some other method, I think, is just patently false. Mm. You can get into some pretty weird spaces, you know, and they may have many or some similarities to the things that you get with drugs, but it's certainly not the same thing. Mm. Well, yeah, the, the nature of sameness here is, is problematic anyway. Well, yeah, sameness is just a word we don't need. Mm. It's really a degree of similarity. Mm. But it was interesting, actually, because as soon as I mentioned the fact that Terence, because I, I described actually what I described to you, I think, last week associated with my conversation with Bruce yeah. Damer, and the fact that McKenna, while he advocated for, you know, the heroic dose, <laughs> in, in, in practical terms, d- did this 
you know, as an advocate without, after a period of time, partaking in substances. It was very interesting as well. I don't see, do you see that as, a, as some sort of a problem? I uh, No, I mean, I don't fundamentally. I think the, and certainly because McKenna didn't talk in terms of, you know, relative time associated with his consumption of these substances. I well, it would have been interesting. Yeah, it would have been interesting if he'd actually, if there's anything, any input from him on this bad trip and hmm. not taking any more drugs. I mean, if if there, if anything, I fault him at is for not reporting his experience to us. Certainly, <laughs> which is which is a mind of pulp. And talking to my coworker, I made the point quite clearly that I had gotten a lot out of McKenna, irrespective of. So you know, yeah. his his original narrative was well. So there's this guy, a drug pusher, which is of course the narrative of you know criminalization. <laughs> and I said, yeah. no, he was more an advocate. So he said, he oh, well, like explorer. a explorer, a drug evangelist. <laughs> yeah, I said, right. Well, you yeah. know, this is. This is the nature of... But it is interesting, the wanting to secularize... I mean, from the from the kind of Eastern mysticism element on one side yeah. and then on the psychedelic community on the other side, yeah. that mm-hmm. through this, you know, it's... Well, that's it's, something I'm struggling with. Yes. Because, uh, you know, I mean, I'm right in the middle of that. This whole idea of uh, challenging the nature of the uh, the very idea of a self, well, that's old shit in Buddhism, mm. you know, uh, and in drug literature, there's a lot about that. But, uh, you know, th- that's you, – you, you can't avoid some of these deeper philosophical issues, I don't think. Or, or at least you can find a better way to talk about them. I guess that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find a better way to talk about this stuff. Here's my question to you, because I have my own sense of this, but I'm interested in hearing your particular perspective. Do you think capitalism requires the self? Mm, I never thought about that. Uh, I don't really care. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, they're both bogus ideas. The hell with them both. <laughs> well, clearly. So that, that already that already marks so, your... Yeah, whether you require... They certainly go together. Yes. I mean, historically, <laughs> uh, the... the the self is, you know, a couple, what, maybe uh, five, I mean, our self as we conceive it now is maybe 500 or 1,000 years old at the most. Mm. And, um, you know, it's it's just a way of thinking, like, is my basic story. It's a way of thinking about, a way to categorize experience. But Plato you know? of, what, 2,000 plus years Well, yeah, ago. they talk about that stuff, but I don't think their self was very similar to our. I, I don't think they conceived of themselves or lived in a universe even remotely like you and I live in. Clearly. I mean, that's that. That's a given. Well, but I mean, that's enough as far as I can see. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in Plato and in Aristotle, but basically they were nuts. You know, I mean, if they were living today, if they came into living in this world with the minds they had then, uh, they'd be institutionalized. Mm. Mike, that's my bet, anyway. I sound so authoritative. <laughs> I would put money on, yes. I, I would, agree. I mean, they were, but then again, there are, there are various social groups that kind of continue to create kind of these elements where, you know, intellectuals can behave as they did. But you're right, the, the society that they were a part of 
was so completely alien to modern society. Yeah, it's hard to I, – I can't even put myself in their place. Yes. You know? When I read the – of course, we're reading English translations, yes. <laughs> which is – you know, I mean, we don't know much about them. I mean, I certainly don't. I'm reading other people's translations of ancient literature. And you know the history of the scholastics, that they basically bunched them all together and translated them in the 15th century anyway, which is why <laughs> the Bible has so many platonic elements in it. I mean, yeah, it, is, yeah. it is extraordinary, the, uh, yeah, the thin veil of translation in these circumstances. <laughs> so yeah. it is an interesting, because I guess maybe there exists a population amongst us that shares a number of the tenets that you describe associated with the, the internal voice. I assume there are. I assume there are probably, well, I don't know, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. But I think what, but everybody sort of come to this conclusion through their own method and their own uh, languaging. And so... You know, it, I know for years, I mean, I knew this stuff, but I couldn't, I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't knew, I didn't know I knew it. You know, it, it took me years to figure out how to talk about what happened to me. Mm. And, and now that that's becoming more common, I think we're going to find better ways to talk about this. And that's why I do the podcast is I stumble through this shit and uh and put it out there and i'm hoping that and what i'm discovering is yes indeed there are individual people who hear this stuff and respond to it so if a group of let's say 9000 people got together in physical proximity yeah. in san jose to discuss or at least conceptualize the notion that you know, violence and stress. So I, I spent a few yeah. minutes talking to my coworker about stress in particular, yeah. because I think it's something which is um, can be embodied in terms of internal forces quite clearly, but also has, you know, there are certain behaviours, external behaviours, that are, if one wants to play the game in the capitalist society, unavoidable. There are well, that's the clue. If yeah. If you choose to play that game and take it seriously, yeah. Certainly. Certainly. But anyway, I I got the sense through this that there was an existing community, and because I guess it's not necessarily that I've shelved the general discussion associated with the PTSD project, I just think mm. it's it's something that ultimately, well, you know, we've been yeah. discussing it for however many years now, and <laughs> my view is it would be very easy to kind of self-motivate well, some of these that, things. Well, but, you know, you're sort of saying what I'm thinking anyway, is that there are a lot of things, there are a lot of people around the world in these separate groups that have come to these places, or have struggled with these questions, and are currently in some state, uh, but it's getting clear that that we're all sort of doing the same thing. There's something underneath all of this. And I, I wouldn't be surprised in the next few years to start to see the, not the organizations, but the individuals in the organizations beginning to uh, mix with other organizations and the whole thing, you know, sort of coming together in some form or other. I mean, I, I, I'm sort of uh, placing my bets on that. So I watched a documentary through the week associated with Berkeley in the 1960s. It took it from 1960. Actually, <laughs> from Savio, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Whatever yeah. happened to him? I think he died. 
would have uh, thought so. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I just read uh, probably six months ago about him, and <laughs> now I've completely forgotten it. <laughs> he was quite a character. I mean, you have, these, you have these amazing orators coming out through this period, and the ability for him to completely lampoon the, you know, the regents and the folks, you know, in the yeah. academic hierarchy at Berkeley, sufficient to convert not only the student body, but also the academic body <laughs> against their masters is really phenomenal. Well, you know, yes, yeah, it sort of pisses me off that it takes charismatic individuals uh, to to get the job done, you know, it, it seems to me that's really sort of what at least what I'm working towards is, is really we need we need a world full of Mario Savios. Yes, yes. Similarly, yeah. the the documentary also dealt with the Black Panthers, which is an organization that I am historically sympathetic towards, and have have gathered yeah. Black Panthers online, um, if if nothing more, to try and learn something from their kind of collective experience. Yeah, um, and I think it's interesting because the we discussed maybe two or three recordings ago associated with um, you know firearms and something that I've been following for a, a few years now is the whole open source firearms movement, which has come to a head in recent months with wide articles and various other things associated with a fellow in Texas who I don't think actually represents the open source firearms community at all. But it is quite fascinating, this notion of what constitutes illegal knowledge and what <laughs> actually constitutes in physicality something that is illegal. Yeah. So the transition from folding metal to connecting metal to in California. Yeah, at what quite, point does it become a lethal exactly. weapon? Yes. In California <laughs> specifically, the origins of the metals and these kind of things <laughs> are, are part of the classification very much. I'm not sure whether we discussed the notion oh. of assault weapons, but the idea that an assault weapon is defined as something that is not explicitly, but implicitly cheap to manufacture versus something that, you know, the Colt Firearms Company can produce for $800, which have exactly the same properties. But if it's producible at $150, then it's an assault weapon versus, for example, what Colt produces, which is not classified as an assault weapon. At oh, least that's in interesting. California. I've never heard that. <laughs> no, it is, it is really the legacy of the Black Panthers in terms of the whole language of assault yeah. weapons is really yeah. quite phenomenal and something that I've um, <laughs> continued to research online. In terms of ease of manufacture, and this is indicative when one thinks of the tribal regions of Afghanistan, for example, yeah. you know, the AK-47 is one of the easiest firearms to make in in any meaningful sense. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the movement online associated with um, you know, this 3D printing fabrication of firearms oh, yeah, is yeah. all associated with the AR-15s, which are the M16 yeah, derivatives. Yeah, yeah. And the AK-47 community is considerably smaller, but can manufacture weapons at a far cheaper rate. It is actually... So, watching, watching this fellow, this new evangelist for... He builds basically um, AR-15s in plastic... But he's not an engineer. He doesn't have any engineering nuances. So this thing is basically a disposable rifle because it only survives for about, you know, 100 rounds before part yeah. of it breaks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. making these things in plastic is just 
Infantile. <laughs> so mean, the really... question is, is this an assault rifle? <laughs> well, exactly. But the, the whole if it's only it. good for 20 rounds, uh, that would be hard to classify as an assault rifle. Well, he can get 100 <laughs> out of it, which is the interesting <laughs> thing. But the problem is that they're not actually modifying the firearm in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the, yes. yeah. <laughs> if the legislation is specifically about particular engineering elements... See, this is the ridiculousness of this whole question is just a language game. Exactly. It's it's about a bunch of definitions and and uh, and then what are the you know it, it's just bullshit. It, it's a legal, you know, in a sensible world, the real issues. Oh, I don't know what the real issues are. <laughs> I guess we'd find out. <laughs> but no, the phenomenon of what an assault weapon is is something that is never actually discussed. It's interesting because I mean, if you're if you are part of pro-gun circles, then they are just as, um, I don't know, reactionary against this this notion of an assault weapon. But if you look at it in terms of, you know, rate of fire, capacity of rounds, yeah. ability of damage, yeah. the whole notion of assault right and assault weapon is meaningless. Yeah, it's one of these things where. If you can buy, I don't know, Russian firearms very, very cheaply, as you can in most states outside of California. How much? How much does a uh, does uh, yeah the uh, that Russian one? How much does it cost? I mean, how so much when are... I moved to Nevada, you could buy an SKS, which is equivalent, roughly equivalent, to a semi-automatic AK-47 for about a hundred and sixty dollars. Wow! Yeah, that's cheap. Yeah. So I mean, anybody could buy it. For anyone that. could. Yes. Wow. They became more expensive. <laughs> and I mean, why? Why are? Yeah, that sounds awfully. Ch- is that? Is that any good? Apparently so. I mean, I've never fired one, but apparently they are very reasonable weapons if maintained. Oh, and for a hundred and sixty bucks, yeah. Jesus Christ! I'm surprised. Yeah. Now I'm really getting worried. <laughs> well, the issue is, as, as always is the case, is that the people, when people who don't share your political <laughs> views arm themselves, then you have, yeah. you know, you have points for concern. Hence the I know characters. it's scary as hell. Like I say, the the possible futures for America are just, well, they could be anywhere, and they could be really ugly. Mm. It scares me, you know, when I think about it, and, and I'm and, and I'm. St- Still trying to figure out what to do about it, you know. I mean, if I'm going to live ten thousand years, then I'm going to have to face this. Mm. Head on. And I don't know yet. I don't think I. You know, I'm hoping we've got a decade. <laughs> you know, uh, and I'm hoping that somewhere in the next ten years, I'm going to meet other people and things will change sufficiently um, that some sort of plan can be made, maybe. Or, but who knows? Who knows how it's going to develop? I mean, it may things people may just start waking up. You know, I mean, that's the only solution as far as I can see. All the, all the legal shit and all the voting and all the the problem with with Earth is the humans, and until they wake up, uh, I I don't see any hope at all. But the conditions that lead into the situation, I mean, the the things that exist currently ultimately will impact at least the first iterations of what occurs leading into it. And I think it's an interesting phenomena, particularly yeah. when you look at how, and I mean, you've, you've lived through riots, you went and photographed at least <laughs> one set of riots. Yeah. You know, the notion that um, these kind of circumstances tend to occur completely independently of whatever might be going on in someone's <laughs> life. 
yeah. it seems to indicate that, you know, you need to at least be mindful of these circumstances. Well, I've just given up. As If, if it happened now, I'd be swept, swept away. Mm. That's all. You know, and, but again, I, I really achieved that state of mind in Vietnam. I mean, once I got out of there, I, I mean, this is all free time for me. <laughs> you know, and you've lived every minute since almost. Well, except for <laughs> except for a couple here and there, <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm certainly not prepared now. I mean, if if the lights went out <laughs> and didn't come back on, every time the lights go out, I I, I think that scenario. What if they don't come back on? <laughs> What's particularly you know, what, interesting is when they don't come back on for a couple of hours. If they oh, flicker, oh, yeah, then yeah. that's one thing. But if they're not coming back on for a couple of hours, then you know very, you know, yeah, your, your mind goes through yeah, something. Different. Yeah, yeah. But like I say, now I'm I'm just primed for that. I mean, if they go out for 30 seconds, that's the first thought that comes to me. Is, is this it? <laughs> yes. Of course, I, I guess Southern California was affected as well, but certainly I lived through the rolling blackouts of Northern California and the... You know, yeah. Oh, we had them down here too. Yeah, and that was quite a phenomenon. Yeah, but see, that all felt well. This is being, this is unfortunate and unpleasant, but it's being handled. You know, this is the way we handle it. I mean, it was a reasonable way to handle it. There's only so much power. <laughs> You're gonna have to turn it off some places. You know. Yes. But there was power. It's something you could count on. You know. Yeah. If it went out, th- that's well. I'm sure there are probably plenty of books written explaining just exactly how that would go, <laughs> but I suspect uh, I would not be in a good good place for that. So my conclusion to the discussion of open source firearms, because this is something mm, yeah. as, as both open source and engineering, this is something that has kind of interested me periodically. Yeah. And also, the 3D printing element is something that is very big in the model rail community currently. Oh, yes, perfect. Yes, oh, yes. But my decision... Who would think that the model railroaders would be pushing the technology forward? Well, the (laughs) hobbyists in general. I mean, I think what you find in the robotics community is similarly they're pushing the the price of these printers down. Yeah, Yeah. model makers of any sort. Exactly. Yeah, right. So my investment in this has been four books that I keep in my library and this is what i will you know maintain in terms of describing kind of very basic gunsmithing and everything that is needed in between and having read through them maybe four or five times i think you know when the folks come when they have their guns pointed at me at least i'll be able to say do you need those repaired or cleaned or modified (laughs) because if you do you probably I, don't want to be shooting me right about that's now. That's right. Now, that's a wise move. Very good. I, I like that. I these things in advance, Harry. Yeah, don't that's a good one. Don't my uh, that's ability great. to that's address really, these. That's, that's really a, you know, I'm... <laughs> well, you might actually power. make it, you see. I, <laughs> <laughs> knowledge is power. Ah, this yeah. is a topic I wanted to raise with you to start off, because it was why we finished last week. On the topic of language monkey business and drugs... <laughs> My wife thought that that topic, yes. As as noted in our, at the end of our last recording, my wife and I went to see a comedian uh on last Saturday night. And um we came to this through, you know, watching the fellow on Netflix and then liking him on Facebook and then Facebook indicating that he was going to be in town and my wife said to me, 
leading into this experience, they better not put us up front. And I said, don't worry, we won't be put up front. And she said, you better not heckle the comedian. And I said, don't worry, I won't heckle the comedian. <laughs> so what do you know? What oh, do no. you know? Yeah, and you did. No, I didn't. No, 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 <laughs> I didn't. Believe me, this was not this was not the fault of Barbelay on this here occasion. Well, maybe it would have been. Let me tell you the story. So anyway, my wife and I arrive, and we're put in a booth, and the booth is going to be shared by another couple, and we just thought, look, there's a... There's a spare table. This is a, like, dinner and comedy thing. There's a spare table up by the front, but it's kind of off stage right. It's not directly in the centre. It's not going to be the line where, you know, he's going to be facing us. Maybe we'll go down and sit there. So we had quite a nice dinner. I had a... In fact, I have my improv of San Jose glass that I'm drinking out water out of this evening. And um, then they started with two warm-up acts... And they were, you know, fair to very poor. Um, and then the the head comedian came out, um, Felipe Esperanza, perhaps, uh, who was the winner of Last Comic Standing in 2010. So he comes out on the stage, and already you can tell by his body movements, and I was literally eight feet away from him, uh, by his constant foot movements, but also the dilation of his pupils, that he'd probably ingested some cocaine, I would have assessed, within... Yeah. And he has a long... Anyway, some energizer thing. He, well, no, he has a long history, <laughs> and a lot of his humour has cocaine elements in it. Ah, okay. So, so anyway, we're yeah. sitting up front. Now, I didn't, I didn't realise, leading into this, that one... I guess I had the sense of American audiences feeling obligated to laugh in when one was in front of a comedian. Mm-hmm. Like, excessively laugh. And just basically yeah. go crazy in terms of laughter. Yeah, that does happen, yeah. So, I, I can imagine it switching very quickly, though. <laughs> so I typically, and I guess this is an affliction that comes primarily from my mother's side, but probably from both parents. Although this podcast may not um, you know, identify this, I don't typically laugh unless something strikes me as being really quite funny. Yeah. So See, what a, what a concept. Out, <laughs> he came out. And after about 10 minutes, I realized that I'd, I was smiling. I may have chuckled a couple of times, but I hadn't laughed. Yeah. yeah. And I realized that he was giving me, this is the comedian, and this is in an audience of about 400 people. Were other people, oh yeah, everybody was probably breaking up, right? Yeah, exactly. Except <laughs> mysteriously yeah. for me. Except for you, you sourpuss. So the comedian, my wife noticed it more than I did. I guess I was trying to avert attention to the fact that he was giving me kind of death stares. <laughs> and then after about 15 minutes, he, he said... He looked at me and he said, how's it going? I said, he said, I like you. You laugh on the inside. Then he said, straight out of prison, are you? And I thought to myself, okay, I can let this one ride because I'm not going to heckle this guy. I've already given my wife the promise that I'm not going to heckle And besides, you couldn't think of a really snappy retort. Oh, no, I, I had a snappy retort. You had one ready to go? Okay. 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 So anyway, um, he then continued for about 10 minutes and he was doing new material. But he was looking at me more and more aggressively <laughs> through this period. Now, you've got to appreciate, I, I am just an independent person in society, I would like to think. Well, I would like to think that I didn't appear like I was some narcotics officer or something like that. But after about 15 minutes of this kind of constant engaging, 
He then moved into doing his old material, which is what had been on the, you know, the thing that I'd seen on Netflix, yeah. joke for joke, line for line. He was just doing... Yeah, he's just doing what, what he does. What yeah. he knew. And, yeah. and my wife kind of pointed it out to me after the event that she thought that I had really, for whatever reason, completely, you know, riled him through... <laughs> well, no, he got himself riled. You didn't rile him. Oh. You just sat there and know. didn't it's, respond the way you, he wanted you exactly. to. That's, that's his problem, well, not that's yours. I felt about the whole thing. <laughs> but actually, my end emotion associated with this... Wait, wait, you're, your wife is blaming you for this? My wife is not blaming me. I guess when you, when you spend long periods of time with me, you start to realize that certain things happen in my company that don't typically happen in the company of other people. Ah, okay, so you are a troublemaker. I got it. All right. I, I mean, even when you're you're like me in that sense, because I, sometimes I think I'm holding it in so well and being so you know, and everyone else is just aghast at my response. So I think this is how we found each other, Harold. I think by natural yeah. selection, the two. You know, <laughs> yeah, I got you on that one. The two Scrooges oh. have met. So I actually, after thinking about this and also reflecting on. The fact that, I guess, I don't know, it was one of these strange experiences to me, but I was genuinely disappointed <laughs> by the whole thing. I thought to yeah. myself, firstly, I was irritated by the fact that this fellow was so heavily inebriated. I mean, he spent a good, you know, two, three minutes after some jokes laughing at his own jokes, <laughs> which I just irritated me. And this kind of permeated, particularly when he was doing old material. Yeah. And you could tell he was just on autopilot, which really... Having seen, you know, the likes of, I mean, I've never seen them in person, but having seen kind of Cosby and, you know, and Eddie Murphy and all these kind of amazing comedians yeah. perform, you know, some of it is their old material, but some of it is actually, you know, yeah, unique. writers, and, but some of it is written. Yeah, they, they do everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, but they're good and they're good on their feet. That's Those are the ones we like. Yes. The ones who make it up as they go along. So, yeah, I was a little... I mean, I, I must confess, the it moved into almost kind of, I don't know, personal anger in terms of deconstruction, yeah. not because of my interaction, but because this guy just didn't have his shit together, basically. And I thought... Yeah. Well, he's just not very good. Given, yeah. given the... It is one of... So, I may not have told you this story, but... Um, I don't know, maybe five years ago now, because my wife's sister was a travel agent. She's able to get tickets to shows in Las Vegas. So my wife and sisters and their respective partners and I went to a show in Las Vegas called The Mentalist, which is a kind of mind-reading kind of yeah. cabaret act. And he had a, um, a thing where if you guessed how he did it, he would give out $20,000. Aha. Uh -huh. So that's an incentive. <laughs> we had to fill out I'm sure, I'm I don't think I've told you this but I've recited it in a in another podcast. We had to fill out paperwork associated with various points of interest. So it was like what was your childhood name, you know, tomato head, I put down and how um you know, do you have any questions and I put down how long will Charlie live? Charlie was my wife's dog who passed away a couple yeah. of years afterwards. And I said, uh, you know, will the book get published or what have you? So anyway, uh, and you had to write your name on the top of it. So anyway, um after about, you know, fifteen minutes of shtick, he he had an earpiece, which really irritated me. 
He had because what? An earpiece. It was obvious he was. Oh. He had a microphone yeah. earpiece set up. It was obvious he was getting, you know, off off stage coaching associated with these things. So he, the audience wasn't that big. There must have been about maybe eighty people in the audience. He said, um, "Is anyone in the audience called uh, Tom?" And two of us stood up. And he said, "One of you, your childhood name was Tomato Head." And I knew how this whole thing, whole thing was going. So anyway, they put they gave me the mic because obviously. <laughs> wait, but everybody, wait, everyone already wrote this down. And is he's pretending that he's he's sensing that he's just that he's sensing audience. this yes. after people just yeah. wrote it down. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, they gave and me they the buy mic. this shit. Uh, this <laughs> okay, so go on. They gave me the mic then, and I said hello, and he <laughs> said, he said, "Where are you from?" And I said, you're the mind reader, you tell me. <laughs> Good one. Oh, oh no, that's not going to go over big at all, though. And he it? said, I don't care. And he kept on talking. And then, <laughs> oh, yeah, he, and he then, probably... No, 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 it got, it got better. He you said, mean he kept talking to you? Yeah, he kept talking to oh, me. Oh, he didn't see, he that guy's an idiot. He was talking about Charlie and all these kind of things, ethereally. I wasn't going to tell him what kind of creature or what Charlie was. I wanted to yeah. see him kind of perform. Yeah, of and course. And he said, now, come on, tell me where you're from. And I said, well, again, you tell me. And he said, I'm only interested in important information. And I said, <laughs> well, it's only important to you because you keep on asking me. So at which point his mind <laughs> pulled the microphone away from me. Yeah, right. I would think, yes, let's move on. This guy said, is not going to work. He said, I, I think, I, I know this guy comes from England, at which point the microphone has long <laughs> disappeared from me. But I've often thought if I held onto the microphone, because I'd already worked out basically how he'd done the stunts up until that point. And I thought if I held onto the microphone, I would have gone for the 20,000, but I would have given it to everyone in the audience. I would have divided it amongst the audience because it would have basically ruined their evenings. <laughs> but it was a point of irritation. And from that point, I've been marked as a troublemaker when it comes to these the, kind of uh, yeah. environments. So, yeah. yeah, I'm not going to invite you to any of my lectures. I'll exactly. tell you. <laughs> I'll be the heckler without question. In fact, yeah, oftentimes these, these, talk, these talkers actually get in you know, their own paid shill hecklers to... Uh, to sure. No, that could be very useful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, how can I How can I show... How can you show yourself to be truly wise without having yeah. someone that you've already... Yeah, with be, uh, being able to deal with some really ridiculous situation. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, yes, that was, that was that element there. So I have a few other topics here. I mean, just as a, a point of update, basically... I've been going back and studying the successful projects that I've been referencing on Kickstarter to get a sense. I have nothing back from the comic book artist. I'm going to have to get in contact with him and ask. When I last communicated with him, which was last Friday, he said he'd done five of the nine pages. So my assumption is he's finished. But every point has been me getting in contact with him. With him. That's not good. It's not good. But also I'm starting to wonder associated with the... So of the projects that I put money into, of the 16, I was sent a a couple of PDFs, which is partial uh, of one of the things I contributed. I'm supposed to get physical copies um, of something that's newly to be created, but the PDF is half of that, so I'm now one and a half of 16. Okay, so you've gotten... Okay, good. (laughs) Out of how many things? 16. And this began how long ago? Uh, about, what, more than a month ago. And two out of 16. Yeah. Or one and a half out of yeah. 16. So, 
Well, I've, that's not good at all. I I've been think. looking at the project. Have you gotten responses from, yeah, the, you from them? Yeah, you submit all the stuff. I mean, obviously, they take your money and they ask you questions occasionally. Although, of the 16 that have, have been funded, only about eight have actually contacted me for my, you know, postal details and these kind yeah. of things. The thing that interests me is I was looking... So, for example, one of the comic books that I didn't put any money into, but I was following in terms of a success turned out so they got the fellow got uh, close to half a million dollars he had done a web comic for seven years so he already had an existing user base some of the smaller comics that i funded uh basically were looking for under a thousand dollars for their things yeah. but also it's to do with the format and these kind of things i mean i'm thinking very along the lines of your discussion associated with the kind of productization of ideas. Yeah. Th this is something that, you know, I need to be very careful associated with how I organize it, and particularly looking at the highly successful ones, the Christmas of the video approaches and all these things are things that I need to consider very strongly, but I need to have an artist, most importantly. That yeah, you gotta have you got to have a product. <laughs> Although, I mean, a number of these Kickstarters don't actually appear to have products. They just get funding to start with the ideas they don't have anything in advance well if anybody's dumb enough to fund that then they deserve what the fuck they get <laughs> you know certainly but the phenomena is going to be the phenomena is going to be tarnished by these kind of experiences so I'm watching it as, yeah. as we discussed last time very much in the light of it being a barometer for you know potential. I wonder if I mean it seems reasonable to me to, to to respond the way you are but I'm wondering if that's the way most people respond if people just put in their money and then forget about it well I am I part of Kickstarters gives you the facility to follow people so I immediately because it was done through Facebook followed everyone on Facebook that had put, had put some money into Kickstarters of my large friendship group that includes a number of folk that are not necessarily independently wealthy, but certainly more wealthy than I am. No one I know has put has invested in more than four projects. Mm -hmm. I'm very much unique in terms of my 16. To yeah. the point where I'm probably um, tarnished. Well, let's just say my... maybe you were a little naive. No, I wasn't naive. <laughs> no, look, my view with this, and this is certainly the way I talked about it with my wife, was this was part of, if you're going to put yourself on Kickstarter, if you have an idea that you want Kickstarter funding, my view is you need to go into it and you need to test the environment relatively thoroughly yeah. to get a sense of what it is. Ah, makes because sense. if you go yeah. in naive, and certainly I've talked to her, I mean... Yeah. Uh, I think Dennis McKenna, Terence McKenna's brother, was able yeah. to get a successful Kickstarter, but certainly a number of other folk in that space haven't been able to get successful funding through Kickstarter, mainly because they've put up for you know six hundred thousand as opposed to you know going for a lesser amount and just being lucky yeah. to get what they get. Yeah. But it is an interesting method, and it's one that I'm still <clears throat> interested in floating some of my ideas on. But I just need to be relatively clear. Yeah, it's just you got to understand the space. Mm. I, I'm sure there's some really good stuff has come out of there. You know, some I'm not sure, but I'm imagining that in, in, there must have been a couple of really neat projects that got funded in, that never would have been funded in any other way. You in know? just 3D printing alone, there have been 3D printer companies that have actually gone on to manufacture 3D ah, printers through okay. it. And right. I think okay. uh, there was an... In My brother got me... Um, last year, he got me a Playboy subscription. This year, he got me a Fast Company subscription. There was a... And believe me, Playboy has just got much better articles. But anyway, Fast Company, um, the... 
the Kickstarter piece that they did in the last issue broke down where the funding's coming from. I think they've gotten they've gotten half a billion dollars, I think, in the past ten years, of which Kickstarter has gotten ten percent of that, so they're not too shabby. Um, and where are the and where is this the Kickstarter coming from? Is that been broken down? Who is who are the it's, people it's that are doing? People, it was a ten person startup. I think. They no, no, I mean, no, I mean, the people that are putting the money who are using Kickstarter to support new companies. Who are those people? Let, me, that let me get you the article, Heron, because yeah. it goes through that. For people keeping tabs, it is Fast Company, April two thousand and thirteen, from roughly page ninety six. So let me make sure that I've got the initial numbers right associated with the money that has come through so far. I don't think there's a basic breakdown. Uh, Kickstarters versus the government. So in 2010, uh, the National Endowment for the Arts put in $167.5 million and Kickstarters put in $23.5 uh, $91 million. These are people investing in yes. projects. Well, okay. the, the National Endowment of the Arts is obviously the public purse in this case. In Why would they be doing this? Not, this, is, this is a compare and contrast. This is the amount that the National Endowment for the Arts is putting into independent artists, i.e. government grants. Oh, I see. Kickstarter. Okay. Oh, I, I got you. Okay. So the, let me just give you the, in the millions. Yeah. The first year, which is 2010, the millions are from the government, 167 from Kickstarter's 23, well, roughly 24 if you round up. In 2011, from the government, and this is a decreasing amount by 10 million a year, uh-huh. uh, 154 million, and from Kickstarter's 86 million. <laughs> now, come to 2012, from the government, 146 million, from Kickstarter's 274 million. Wow. Kickstarters is putting more into the arts than the government is. So, if you look at boy, the, you know the, the world really is changing. This is, I mean, this is revolutionary. Actually, the fact, I mean, that's well, that's fascinating. I mean, even if it's if it's all a bunch of idiots who are never going to get anything out of it, the mindset is is phenomenal. So, um, last year, I think this is for last year, uh, 86 million people visited the site, uh, 2.2 million back to single project, half a million back two to nine projects, 50,000 back 10 to 99 projects, and 452 back to 100 plus projects. So I'm in the... And how many uh, backed only one project? uh, 2.2 million. 2.2. 2.2. Okay, yeah. So, yes, a number of people are, and I'm in the 50,000, which yeah. indicates that I'm roughly, uh, what, 2% odd of the... Yeah, of yeah the you went, you're, you're an extremist. <laughs> well, I, I want to explore the space. I mean, I want to get yeah, a sense yeah. of what it's all yeah, about. Yeah, you wouldn't know. Yeah, you're right. That, and it's not that expensive, so it's a, it's a test. Yeah. So yeah, the um, <laughs> the one of the largest backers they found was a fellow who's backed three hundred and eighty four projects. And what's the range of projects? There must be some that are really literally only several hundred dollars, and then the biggest projects are 
how big? How big is the biggest project? Okay, is- so they, they, they break this down by creators in terms of, what is this, thousands, thousands a year, which is dollars. Okay, so by creators, uh, in the film and video category, there have been 9,600 creators in 2012. In the music category, 9,086. In the publishing category, 5,634. And the arts category... 3,783 and the games category, which is one of the things that I put my money into, yeah. is 2,796 in the design category, 1,882 and what year is this? In, uh, last year, in the last food year. category 1,800 and change theatre, 1,700 and change fashion, 1,600 and change photography, 1,100 and change, comics which is another area I put my money into uh, 1100 and change technology which is another area that is huge on kickstarter is only 831 and dance which is the smallest group uh, 512 by backers so this doesn't give the actual numbers yeah. associated with it it just gives the the highest number of backers is in games which is what i typically put my money into film and video is next design music technology publishing comics which i thought was strange is pretty well mid-range art food which i also put my money into theater fashion photography and dance dance being the lowest project success rate the tables are almost reversed Dance is the most successfully funded, followed by theatre, music, art, comics, <laughs> film and video, design, food, technology, photography, games, third from bottom, publishing and fashion. This indicates probably that the smaller amount that you want, the more likely you are to get funded, yeah. the more likely you yeah. are to be successful. So dance and theatre, yeah. which typically have small budgets. But, but well, it's small budget, though, dance and theatre, I mean, what is a small budget? That's what I'm talking about. What are the absolute numbers here we're talking about? So it's not, this article isn't very good on that, but you can just do a surveying through the site. I mean, I would say in the in the low hundreds is probably the, the hundreds lower. or hundred thousand hundreds, as in hundreds of dollars. Well, what can you do with three hundred dollars? You can put on a play for a night. A play mm-hmm. for a night for three hundred dollars in Connecticut in your garage in an off. Off Main Street Place in Connecticut. This is the kind of stuff. I mean, okay, you know. so you can rent a theater for the night for three hundred bucks. Yeah, saying okay, all right, all right. That I guess that sounds not unreasonable. So the amount that's like, okay. So they're really just talking about buying theater space. They're not talking about the cost of the production, which is borne by the people who are exactly. doing the production. <laughs> okay, I got it. So, amount pledged in millions of dollars in the year two thousand and twelve. Games, 83 million and change. And that's 83 million about how Successful many? Successful pledges through Kickstarters. No, no, I know, but you said uh, that's 80 million distributed among how many uh, projects? It doesn't give you the successful projects, but I think it's a very small number because Games is third from bottom in terms of success rate. So it's probably only 30%. It's probably only maybe. 400, 500 projects that got um, 83 million. Okay, alright. Although they don't give the exact numbers associated with the sex of... Okay, next is film and video, which got uh, 58 million. 
design, which got fifty million. And wait a minute, wait for film. I mean, the obvious thing is there is you'll give people a copy of the film. Yes. Right. So that's that's the gift, right? You you pledge to this, you'll get in more. If you pledge a bunch of money, you can add some other shit. But you can I mean, be a producer. You can be yeah, a producer. Yeah. Okay. Credit. Yeah. You're right. All sorts of bullshit. But mm-hmm. I mean, basically, the bottom line is they'll give you the, a copy of the movie. Yes. Okay. I mean, that's a good. That's a, a really good. That makes sense. You know, mm. people will get the movie. Certainly. <laughs> so, uh, where was I? Film and video, uh, 58 million. Design, 50 million. Music, 35 million. Technology, 29 million. Publishing, 15 million. Food, 11 million. Art, 11 and a half. Comics, 9.2 million. Theatre, 7.1 million. Fashion, 6.3. Photography, 3.3. And dance, 1.8. Dance is the most successful and also the least funded. Yeah. Interesting. So there are a wide variety of other statistics here. Unfortunately, there aren't any statistics associated with where um, where the money is coming from, but they do have where the projects are coming from. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I'm interested in who these people are that are that are funding these things. Yes, I am as well, but it doesn't give those statistics. It yeah. tells you where the projects are coming from. I can give you those. No, I don't care. They're coming okay. from everywhere. You well, know. no, they're well, mainly coming from New York, Los well, Angeles, San yeah. Francisco, Chicago, okay. and Washington, yeah. D.C. All right. Okay, that makes sense, too. Uh, yeah. yeah. And then every place else. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, so it's it's interesting. If the growth in, is continuous, if... The, well, that can't be con- clearly. It yeah, it won't. It'll but slow down. The phenomena of what stops it from continuing on, I think, might actually come through lack of fulfillment. Yeah, if people are unhappy, if they put in their money and don't get what they were promised, then they're not going to be happy with that. Hell yes. Yes. That's bad news. Certainly. So if yeah, so if uh, Kickstarter wants to stay in business, they better you know, handle this. (laughs) So I have written to them in this slide, and the response that I got back was pretty (laughs) wishy-washy. They basically said that since their start, they have had people that have complained of this phenomena, and that there is nothing they could do, but you need to give the people time in order to produce what they've promised to produce. Well, but that's all part of the contract, isn't it? Don't they have a time? And I mean, isn't that's what there they a time? State, but apparently, Kickstarter is less interested in enforcing that than they are in telling you that you just need to wait. Oh, okay. So, I mean, in the deal, it says you will receive this by this. We will complete the project on this date. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but Kickstarter says, oh well, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the majority of the that's projects, a bad sign. <laughs> a majority of the projects that I funded said that they would be at completion by the end of March. Okay. Well. All right. Well, here we are. We'll see. <laughs> well, here we are, and we see. I don't think we'll see. We. Well, see. it's not the end yet. <laughs> Well, it is for postal delivery, unless something was... <laughs> unless it's already in the mail. Well, you know? this is something that I've been tracking as well. So one of the projects that I, f- I funded was uh, the cartoonist and the economist publishing his collective works, which he said would be available by April. I'm in the book, and I'm, I receive a signed copy of the book. 
and that apparently has just gone to the printers. I mean, you do get periodic updates from okay. these folk. All right. so, well, as long as they keep, yeah, I would say that's okay then. I mean, as long as you're in communication with them, I think we're, we're in good territory. I'm in communication with a minority of them. So yeah. my yeah. view is that... Um, what yeah, the th- other ones ought, ought to all be taken to jail directly. <laughs> do not pass go. Right. They have already collected my money, so yes. It is It is an interesting phenomenon, one particularly if this comic book drags on. I don't really... I mean, we talked last time about me allowing the comic book to take its own natural course, but my view currently is I have so many projects that are at a similar point that I need to actually you know, move some others further up the list and just put the comic book, you know, into the yeah, long Well, that's term. the way I work is I've got, you know, a number of projects and the energy shifts from one to the other and I just go where it feels right. You know, there's things I haven't worked on for years, but they're still here. They're there. They're projects, you know, and, and when, if it comes back to that, then I'm ready to go on that, but I'm doing other stuff, you know. So one of the projects that I've been looking at recently has been associated with getting Noble Ape to edit podcasts. And this came through uh, work that I did. Wait, I don't understand what you just said. To get Noble Ape to what? Edit podcasts. Oh, oh, you mean get the software to edit? The podcasts, yes. Podcasts. Holy shit, that would be nice. So it's not... It's not a difficult concept to do. So part of this, as I've described, although you may not have put two and two together, is that I have five chapters that I have worked on associated with applications of Noble Ape that are of interest and relate to machine intelligence. One of those chapters relates to Noble Ape, the software, editing podcasts. (laughs) At, At what level? I mean, when you say editing, I mean that. Okay, let me describe. The is it all going to take out all the ums and ahs? Yes, and that's part of it. So yeah, th- th- okay. there's a multi-part process. So I I record in stereo in terms of the my track and the other track, two separate tracks. I have a variety of issues associated with incoming noise when I record model rail radio. The audio I would want to do this on initially is model rail radio. And that's basically what I've been working towards with developing the software. Mm-hmm. Is taking the wide variety of you know problematic audio that I get through model rail radio that I have to manually edit. Wait a minute, let me ask you. I got you're not dealing in any way with any semantic issues here. These are talk basically cleaning them up and making them. I mean, you're not dealing with content. You're dealing with the form of the sound waves, right? In part, I mean, um elimination is relatively easy to do. The, yeah. the, the tools that I have are... But, I mean, you're not doing content analysis, are you? Well, you can, you can do basic content analysis. I mean, that's what's interesting, is with frequency analysis, uh, with spacing, with listener identification... Oh, sorry, with speaker identification, I mean, all the things that you can get really easily with Noble Ape, you can actually do more advanced content analysis than you may initially imagine. So, well, first of all, so you can go ahead, you can then what, convert these, this uh, audio stream into text? I don't want to do that, and that's not the aim of the software. The aim of the software is to do about 90% of my hands-on editing process for me. Yeah, okay. And only leave me with some of the most difficult, unintelligible audio to do yeah. the final okay. work I got, on. Yeah, yeah. 
you know about Levelator, right? So I use Levelator, yeah. yes. Yeah. The, the issues with Levelator are interesting because already with the, just the frequency analysis, I could do everything that Levelator does, yeah. but do it in a in a more intelligent form of better Oh, that would fashion. be nice. Yeah, I mean, but Levelator is nice, but yeah, yes. but that's part of the beauty of it is it just you don't have to dick around with well, it. Well, it's difficult <laughs> if there's certain kinds of external white noise mess up level later. I mean, if you have yeah. any... So I did a recording once of the National Model Railroaders Association board in a Las Vegas hotel where the air conditioning was right above the only microphone that functioned through the entire thing. And level later gave me some of the way, but I had yeah. to do a number of additional techniques yeah. to clean up the audio. Yeah. My yeah. frustration, so this project... But that's the kind of thing that's relatively easy to clean up if you have a good audio. Editor. Certainly, yeah. 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 Audacity was, was good enough here. Yeah. So the project, basically, I've worked over two model rail radio audio recordings with the software and the problem has come back consistently to the varied formats of the audio file format AIFF which is what I use as my baseline format I've used AIFF for more than a decade now I wrote an AIFF um well, that's pretty library. much the standard, isn't it? Yeah, IIFF or WAV. I mean, yeah. So uh, the frustration that I've had is actually that there are, it's not a well complied with format in more recent times. So you need to you need to disregard certain parts of it and accept other parts of it in order to read, you know, multiple component AIFF. So, for example, if it's handled by Audacity, you'll get one format if it's handled by itunes you'll get a slightly subtly different format and the frustration that i've had through this work has not been with the artificial intelligence component of it it's been working through the manipulations of the standard by these various third party you know producers and i thought to myself this was a project that i had written about extensively and done the initial analysis on but my energy associated with open source is relatively finite. It's basically maybe two hours a night in the evenings, typically the late evenings, that I devote to this endeavor. And over the past few nights, rather than working on this, I have been going onto GitHub, which is a large open source repository, downloading projects and fixing them for the people concerned and then resubmitting them because that's what you do. You download yeah. it, you do the fixes, and then you resubmit it to them. And what I found through that is actually there are just by random selection or selection, I selected a series of artificial life programs to fix up. I can do a lot of this in almost almost automation. It's one of these things that's quite strange that I'm writing software to do automation, but my ability to edit code <laughs> is virtually automatic. I mean, if you know, if as was the case last night, I woke up with light indigestion at 3 a.m. I was able to do this subconsciously until about 4 a.m. and then go back to sleep, having, you know, fixed and substantially unified one of these projects on GitHub. I wonder if I do this through multiple cycles, if eventually I'll start to get a... Because, I mean, these open source communities are all about reputation. Up until now, I've generated a reputation by, you know, having no belief, but actually going out and assisting these other projects... Could be in the well, that can, that would be a good thing to do in and of itself. Yeah. You know, the recognition would be nice and probably would come, but probably not a good reason to do it. <laughs> I think the thing that strikes me is particularly because of what I do professionally. Very few people, and here we're talking about maybe in the hundreds, less than hundreds, 
do what I do professionally. Um, it's one of these curious things that um, of the particular kind of software engineering I do now, I found a niche which is highly lucrative in terms of, you know, iOS, but also iOS and server integration, which very few people do. And to have that knowledge base and con to convert some of this knowledge into these projects is really quite interesting because mm. a lot of these people do this almost... I mean, many of them are either hobbyists or university students of a standard that they couldn't do this stuff professionally, but they're interested in throwing yeah. some ideas together basically online. In fact, my standard has always been relatively high associated with releasing something open source for Noble 8, for example, but also other open source projects I've done. And many of these projects that I've been working on are... You know, either people's, you know, university projects or something where the people just, you can see them throwing the ideas together. I mean, the notion of actual software engineering, returning to the discussion of, you know, 3D gun printing. An engineer is a thing, you know. It is an entity that has a particular kind of methodology in terms of the way in which they approach problems. And it is interesting actually seeing particularly students, maybe they're engineering students, maybe they're computer science students, I'm not really clear from, you know, the information they provide with their open source projects, but you can see that they it's not their bread and butter, you know, it's not what they yeah. do. And for me, it is... Have you ever seen, like, speed Rubik's Cube solvers? You know, people that solve <laughs> yeah. Rubik's Cubes, yeah. just, like, yeah. they don't even need to look at them, they just kind yeah. of twiddle their yeah. fingers and yeah. it's done. That's really... My wife was quite fascinated because I did this... I've done this for a couple of evenings... Um, just before we go to sleep, and she always leans over and just looks at me. You do working. the Rubik's cube before you go to sleep. No, no, but no. What I'm saying is that the <laughs> way that I edit these projects is like the people that do the Rubik's cube. It's ah, very okay, thank fast you. and furious and unifying. Yeah. It's it's completely yeah. subconscious. It's here are the problems. Yeah, it's you, a totally. Yeah, you're right. It's nothing to concern yourself mm. with. <laughs> yeah, See, it's an automatic program yeah it is it is an interesting thing because but um, establishing that see that's interesting the idea of what it takes for the rubik's cube which is about as pointless a thing as there is uh to spend the time to to get that way at it but still it demonstrates that that's possible that's i guess important i've watched maybe half a dozen rubik's cube solution videos on youtube yeah, and I think the principle is relatively basic. I mean, what you're doing is very basic pattern matching. Oh really, yeah, but I still don't think you have to put in many, many hours of practice. The I muscle mean, memory is something that obviously people need to practice on. But the yeah. actual the actual concept of how you solve a Rubik's cube, I well, think, I can know, be taught in a yeah. relatively short amount of time. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying that's not the point. That doesn't mean anything. It's doing it with your body. That's the problem. Mm. And that, it's like you can explain to somebody how to play the piano in about 10 minutes, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> not everybody can play the piano well. I think playing the piano is a couple of orders of magnitude. Well, more. I may be cheating a little you bit. That, but but yeah. I, I think the, pr the principle is pretty much the same, though. I think that's a significant uh, investment of time and energy to to get your body to do something like solve a Rubik's cube at that level, but of course those are usually fourteen year old teenagers who don't have anything else to do. Mm. So <laughs> the testosterone hasn't quite kicked in, right? Yet. No, they just they got nothing better to do. They know TV sucks, so they sit in their room and do Rubik's cube for six or eight hours a day. Yes. <laughs> so part of the reason that Noble Ape has this audio editing capacity. 
is really the kind of continued momentum from our conversations initially, because getting the, over the period of time, I think from when we initially started talking, I talked to you about the Noble Ape language that was being developed, or they were allowed to internally develop, and part of that has been making audio versions of that language. Mm-hmm. which is a project that I was working ah. on for a good portion of last year. It is kind of... You mean so that there's a spoken language yes. for these apes? Yes. So the bit that I haven't done is the bit associated with um, mouth and nose. But what mm-hmm. I have done is the bit associated with um, throat, particularly kind of clenching frequencies, so now it's kind of it's a it's a um, almost like have a, you, I'm sorry. Have you looked at the phonographics in relationship to this? Well, I I have a history of this when I was working on audio compression. So I did when I was working on audio compression. I've been relative. I through a series of constraints haven't gone back and looked at the most current stuff. But when I was published in Nature Inspired Informatics, one of the co published works was associated with speech analysis. So I am familiar with how you, you know, the, the Fourier theory associated with... Well, I would really... Well, never mind. I don't know uh, about that aspect. So, mm. But you might find the phonographics thing could be useful. If, or if not, fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's something that I probably would invest more time into in the future, but it's as, as these things often are with Noble Ape, it's stubbed in such a fashion that people could use it to start off with and then explore yeah. from there. I mean, yeah. it has both, it has both high, high pass and low pass elements. It has, um, you know, general resonant frequencies and the adjustment of those frequencies, yeah. but it yeah. needs, it needs probably another six months worth of dedicated work to make it into something that's interesting. The thing that I want, are to you going to use uh, English as no. the basic sound no, system? Not, at all. not the grammar. Not what, at what, all. How are you deciding what sounds are going to make up the language? So there are two parts of this. One is the genetic component and the other is, um, socially agreed upon, language. So the anticipation is that just based on genetics, groups of apes sound similar, but it's when they start interacting with each other, the way in which language is formed in Noble Ape actually requires almost kind of competitive speech, but it basically repro- you have you have a notion uh-huh. of internal language and external language. The internal language, these are basically byte codes that are manipulated. The internal language not only represents each individual ape, but also I think six apes that they come in contact with. Or even and, and the environment, about. right? And the environment. Yeah. So what happens is there are phenomena where apes can have internal simulations of apes that have been deceased for at least two generations. Or alternatively, you have this ability of, like, friend and foe. So you have both um, deities and, and, and demons, for want of a better term, in terms of how they're kind of appropriated. But these are internal conversations that the apes have with their own internal representation and other representations that they have of apes. You know, you're talking about the very stuff I've been writing about in this this past week, about the origins of language itself. So I got a book, um, which I'll, I'll take off the shelf. So I'm holding in my hand Origins of Mind, which I think is the last Springer book I will ever be published in. And on page 383, the minds of the noble ape in three, sorry, the mind of the noble ape in three simulations, which explains the um, kind of uh, low-level cognitive simulation, the social simulation, and then the Heronstone-inspired narrative engine, 
which has basically carried through uh, all this work associated with external and internal representations. <clears throat> through extended discussions with futurist linguist Heronstone, the challenge was made that Noble Ape should be able to simulate the linguistic phenomena Stone advocated. Every aspect of modern human existence appears to be based on an executed language program. Barbelay and Stone, 2011. <laughs> well, that's... Um... That idea is something I'm continuing to work on. I think, I think there's something fundamentally wrong with the way humans and academics understand the, the purpose of language. Mm. And I think it's not, it's not primarily a communication tool. That's, that's only recently that we, it's been used that way. But language is basically what I call the monkey operating system. Well, that's exactly what I advocate yeah, as well. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So. Language is the way an individual maps its territory, its environment, including the other actors in the environment. Exactly. And that it creates an internal map that is totally unique to it. Every single player maps its territory. It's only recently that we've somehow, with these noises we make, begun to share our maps. And that's everything that's happened. <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest change in the world. But primarily, see, I would say mosquitoes have language. Mm. It's, it's not much of a language, but it certainly it maps their environment and allows them to navigate their, their world. Yes, and if you've ever fed multiple hungry cats, as I do on a regular basis you know very clearly that they have quite a, a refined language that is used. <laughs> they by... absolutely do. Yeah. Well, every, everything, that's the thing, is it's re really common to all, it's certainly, well, every living being literally ha has the beginning of language, an amoeba that can distinguish between something that's toxic and something it can eat, that's the beginning of language. Mm. So, certainly the... Paleobiologist I talked with, uh, Roy Plotnick, I stayed with him and his family midway through last year, but I've been in correspondence with him for at least, since about 2005, I think, 2006. He has this view that this communication is, is intelligence as well, intelligence in terms of survival, and that basically all these things that we kind of burden with, you know, highfalutin philosophy and all this kind of nonsense is, in fact, as you describe, something that is very primitive, but also is connected with survival, communication, and a variety of other things. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think what's happening is, like I say, this internal mapping that existed in the monkeys until we started talking to one another was isolated inside it was a it was a part of each individual monkey or or horse or mosquito for instance it doesn't make a difference but once these monkey things started figuring out a way to integrate their their different mappings and talk about it and and exchange information through speaking that changed the whole game and i think the end point of that is really the borg you know where we where the mind is not something bound in the individual, but is in fact a property of the the, uh, the not the species, but the the group or whatever the hell you want to call it. It's it's uh, yeah that that's where we're headed. So, if what you do is theoretical, 
and what I do is kind of computer applied. The academics that claim to do this kind of stuff are so far removed from both of us <laughs> that we almost yeah. need something new, you know? Like Yeah, we're going in and that's what we're doing. We're creating a new world, yes. And that means new language, new ways to talk about things. So through the week, while I've been maintaining these other open source projects... Long-term Noble Ape contributor Bob Mottram has started working on Noble Ape again. I think he also <laughs> listen, listens to, to the Stone Ape podcast. I, I want to, uh, you know, bring him into the fold as well. Bob is quite a character. Uh, I have had some brief recorded interviews with him. When I say brief, they're about, you know, 40-odd minutes uh, recording. <laughs> yeah, that's brief. <laughs> brief by Barbelay standards, at least. Um, but it does strike me that there is a community. I mean, we receive, we, we, some of the fan mail I receive, some of the fan mail comes to both of us. But, you know, we are starting to receive fan mail associated with this really? thing as well. Well, that's, that is really the point of it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the point is to change the thinking in the world and to, to create a new conversation. And if anybody's interested in doing that, I want to know them. So an interesting phenomenon occurred with my development of Noble Ape after probably, well, after the Apple stuff and these kind of things, that I started being contacted by, let's just call them independent philosophers. I think that probably, <laughs> yeah, that probably but, describes, yeah, you know. there's a lot of us out there. Yeah. <laughs> so the email that we both received from Eddie through the week was akin to email that I would receive from particular users of Noble Ape at one time or another. And it made me realise that what I've done through these recordings is just discovered basically another group of roughly the same kind of people that I had originally appealed to associated with Noble Ape. Mm -hmm. In terms of, I mean, I've had this experience with when I was at um, uh, Michigan State University last year of looking in the eyes of academics and PhD students that realised what I was doing with Noble Ape was not anything that would be of benefit to them. And the funny thing is that this was something that they realised both implicitly and explicitly, but I needed to have the experience explicitly in yeah. order for me to realise what was going on. The interesting yeah. thing was that I was I bumped into a fellow who I think his name was Kyle uh, Harrington, who had picked up one of the uh, open source uh, projects, Breve, that's quite well known and liked in the artificial life community. You know, I'm still stuck on the fact that you said you think his name was Kyle Harrington. Yes. But it might have been Jim Peterson. It was. But, but, but you think it was Kyle Harrington. No, no. I know it was a similar. <laughs> I know his first name was Kyle, and my, my recollection was his second name was Harrington. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. I, I just got completely stopped by that. <laughs> I, I, anyway, so he, he and I talked for about an hour through a meal. In fact, a woman a few seats down from us had an epileptic fit while we were having this meal. <laughs> uh, because you had the meal. No, oh, okay. because all right, all right. clearly these artificial life folk come in all shapes and, and ah, uh, are conditions. Are language monkeys and subject to epileptic fits. Yeah. Certainly. So the thing that struck me from that conversation was he certainly had a great degree. And I did meet, as I've noted, uh, a few folk at this that gave me respect for the podcasts and Noble Ape and these kind of things. 
None of them, however, have maintained contact with me, which I think is the kind of lasting legacy that I've had from the experience. Well, that's the same thing I face. I get people who would, you know, tell me all sorts of wonderful things, how much they love what I'm doing and how helpful it's been to them, and I never hear from them again. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't know. Your audio quality has dropped, Heron. Have you unplugged? Oh, yes, I put my, I pushed the mic up. Not a problem. It should be better now, right? It is, it is. Yeah, it's a funny thing because I guess I reflect on, I mean, folks such as Bob Mottram have been such a huge upswell in my own emotional energy associated with Noble Ape. I mean, to have those kind of interactions. It's awesome when someone else is committed to the same thing you are. You know, that's that's just mind-boggling. That they're actually serious about it and will put their time and energy into it, not just say, oh, how cool it is. Exactly. But, I mean, I guess this is a large part of this podcast as well, that when I meet other people who are as obsessive as I am and about similar things, then there's always a kinship that develops independent of a wide variety of other factors. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the kind of interactions that I want to have maximizes those kind of experiences. So, you know, for our recent conversations, there have been a whole lot of kind of ethereal discussion, but I would like to kind of maximize these kind of experiences going forward. That's why I'm here. A lot of our discussions have been relatively ethereal on this topic, but there must, I mean... I don't see it as ethereal at all. I'm not, what do you mean by ethereal? So, for example, we talk about Kickstarters, we talk about utilizing Facebook, we talk about the published word, we talk about audio podcasts, we talk about all these aspects to try and find a means to motivate folks who are interested and, uh, you know, intellectually able to interact with us and well, yeah, every forward media, our ideas. Yeah, right, yeah. Yes. So the ways in which we do this are all described associated with optimizing current situations for a future hope. Well, I'm still working on figuring out what the hell I'm trying to do. Mm. So, I mean, I mean, as well as how I'm going to do it, I, and I know enough about what I'm going to do that I can begin to start looking at how I'm going to do it. But I, I still, I'm still putting it together in just... I don't feel comfortable with what I'm saying yet. I, I think I'm getting pretty close, but I think there's just more work to be done on how to talk about this stuff in some sort of sensible manner. I mean, I, I think I'm doing okay, but but it's not good enough. I think that the dress rehearsal is something that can go on for a lifetime. My oh, yeah. view <laughs> is that um, I've had certain experiences where I have a sense, and I've had some that have been successful, some that have been unsuccessful, but I know when I have a particular public forum, I can typically outline relatively concisely exactly the distinctions between me and any other given speaker on a specific topic. And I think the thing that strikes me is that these skills in and of themselves don't constitute the creation of a community or the motivation of... Um, you know, an intellectual movement. No, what there's part of it is the, well, sorry, part of it is the idea, whether it's really right or not. You know, whether it really does help. Part of it, though, is the means of communication. The people that have discovered this podcast have done it through a variety of different methods, but really, the aim. I think, in a broader sense. I've considered this, for example, with regards to both terrestrial and satellite radio. Mm -hmm. 
there was a period about six or seven years ago when satellite radio was still in its relative infancy where they approached a series of podcasters in order to put together audio for satellite radio. This lasted typically between six months and a year of the various contributors, and I think what happened through that was just the translation that of what was being done in the most popular podcast forms, it didn't translate very well. To well, these are radio. all profit-making adventures, aren't they? I think there's a certain aspect of satellite radio which is just associated with channel fulfillment. I think it's actually a quite different phenomena to um, terrestrial radio in terms of the fact that they want to cover market segments and they want to do so with a quality of audio that will justify people's subscription. That means that they... Are, so this is always a pay service, though. I mean, uh, so satellite we, radio. We have... Since we, since we got my wife's dream... See, I know nothing about it. Let so me tell I, you. I, let yeah, me tell you. Right, yeah. Since we got my wife's dream vehicle, which has satellite radio on it, this was part of the sweeteners for moving to the Bay Area to live in a small cat-infested apartment. Um, we have satellite radio. We have the Sirius XM service um, within the vehicle, and what it provides is actually quite an interesting spectrum of audio. And the thing that strikes me is that there are still a number of stations that could be populated and could be populated with audio that people are listening to. Mm -hmm. My questions, I guess, relate to numbers. So, for example, as model rail radio moves into the hundreds of thousands of listeners... Is that something that satellite radio can gauge? And, for example, the Grateful Dead channel on satellite radio, they have the Grateful Dead channel, they have, I think, the Who, they have a series of channels that are related to specific artists, they have... And are each of these, like, profit-making companies that are saying, okay, let's do a Who channel, and, uh, you know, whether it's the Who or somebody who owns the copyrights, I guess... So the case, of the, grateful, the case of the Grateful Dead, it's relatively simple. A majority of their concerts now exist in the public domain through the Internet Archive. Funnily enough, the same Internet Archive that I use for Stone Ape, uh, you know, my Noble Ape podcast, the Biota podcast, and Modern yeah. Rail Radio. Okay. Once this audio exists in the public domain, my view is that they already have the mechanisms. It's not about each individual station making profit, what they're looking at doing is covering a sufficient number of demographics to guarantee someone will pay, I think we pay $19 oh, a month okay. for it. Okay, not 20 bucks a month yeah. okay, for this. And, yeah, and there are, what, hundreds of channels, I guess, yes. right? It's pretty much just the audio counterpart of cable tv right it is i mean my wife my wife listens to and is there live stuff on there as well yes. as recorded stuff so on the weekends the grateful dead channel does uh, live updates i mean what happened with the grateful dead was that there were a series of djs from coast to coast that were basically dead djs that would play these concerts and have discussions and what you find is of the you know 20 or so of these people maybe the top three or four host dead variety hours on saturday and sunday and they cover various areas and various bits of grateful dead trivia and all this kind of stuff but most of it is this huge free audio source of grateful dead concerts going back from the late 60s through okay. to i guess the mid 90s and and the people who are basically listening to this and recording it i guess or not or or whatever but this is all open source stuff right nobody owns copyrights on any of this it's exactly. just there yeah so how's so 
There's no money. Is there any money? Are there commercials on satellite radio? There is on some stations, on the Grateful Dead station, there isn't. What's interesting is actually the more commercially profitable stations have commercials. So the Grateful Dead station doesn't. They do still sell specific edits of Grateful Dead recording sessions, which they do discuss on the... You know, yeah, I can see packaging special things and selling mm-hmm. them. That makes perfectly good yeah. sense. The, the, the originals, the, the f- basic stuff is there available to anybody. If you want to add something to it, then that's cool. So, yeah. for example, the concerts that they did in the UK in, I guess, the late 60s have specific copyrights and were released in kind of Goldmaster for $70, you know, editions where you get, I guess, 20-odd CDs of Grateful Dead through those periods. The thing that strikes me about the Dead is that... But they um, still play They still play that stuff, though. Yes. Yeah, okay, and you can record that stuff. You could if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, okay. I mean, my view with regards to the Dead archive... I have, I don't know, maybe five or six Grateful Dead vinyl. My wife has a few Grateful Dead CDs. I mean, it's not of the... It's actually really quite interesting associated with the value of music. One of the topics I wanted to discuss with you, which we've fallen into, is actually attending rock concerts. (laughs) Because uh, if anyone has some rock concert stories, I'm assuming you probably do, Heron. Oh, I have a couple. (laughs) I saw every Frank Zappa concert that he did in Southern California for many years. And, uh, I was a huge Zappa fan. I still love Frank <laughs> and, uh, going to those concerts was, <laughs> well, it was just, it was like going to the opera. It was a night at the opera, you know, it's great. And did you know, did you have Zappa friends that you saw at the concerts? No, it wasn't like that. I just went, I yeah, no, I wasn't, you know, yeah, no, I, I didn't wreck it. I mean, I, I usually went with a few, and there are several people I knew were also Zappa friends, friends so we went together. Uh, but I never, no, I guess I never did see anybody there I knew. So my wife was a deadhead yeah. through the, I guess, early to late, or early to mid-90s, whenever Jerry Garcia passed away. And um, she had quite a community she had a small terrier that she would take to the concerts or a schnauzer yeah. who was well-known in the community. Because yeah, the Deadheads was a whole different thing. Yeah, yes. right. There was a tribe of followers that, yeah. That's yes. All. Yeah. That must have been it. And your wife was in that tribe? Yes. Oh, that must have been fascinating. <laughs> I think she was, she was, I mean, she was the last generation to be able to have done that. It's yeah. actually quite... Astonishing. The last deadhead. There's your title. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're on this now, are we? We're going model rail radio and finding the title for the show. Very good. Very good, Aaron. I like that. So it was a, I mean, the thing that she found was that she would meet, she'd go there and she'd see her high school teachers and these kind of things. I mean, it was one of these strange communities where everyone was, you know, everyone had a role in the straight world and then they'd go to these concerts. Yeah. I was not a deadhead. I I barely was aware of them. I guess that was just after I dropped that stuff again. When did they first become? No, but I was there in the 60s. They were there in the 60s. -hmm. I don't know why I never got into them. That's interesting. I mean, I, I thought they were okay, but I I guess it's because I was a musician. They're really shitty musicians. Actually. The dude is, um, <laughs> I, I have this running joke with my wife 
where you can take any piece of music and you can turn it into a Grateful Dead cover. <laughs> yeah, just hire a bunch of high school <laughs> musicians. No, no, I, I do it vocally. <laughs> I take a song and then, and then you know, make it covered by the Grateful Dead. Yeah. I actually, I mean, on my YouTube channel, I have examples of this where I take, you know, relatively modern songs and convert them into Grateful Dead songs, <laughs> much to my wife's. <laughs> yeah, I can understand. She that. stays off camera <laughs> through this, thankfully. But um, it is—it is a phenomenon. I mean, I—I I, the dead. You see, Dylan got Bob Dylan got bad in the. I don't know. Sometime through the eighties, by the uh, early nineties, Bob 90s, Dylan never got bad. No, 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 no. <laughs> you need to hear his recordings in the late eighties, early nineties. You. It's it is really a phenomena associated with a man who has just lost his ability, and for whatever reason, I mean, maybe he was on particular medication or what have you. But you'd listen to these recordings, and you'd have to stop and that, that's him singing. <laughs> yeah, that's well, you know, but that's exactly sound. was my very first. I remember when I first heard Bob Dylan uh, in a in a record store in a, on a forty five record. One of his, I think it was. I don't remember. It was one of his very first recordings, like freewheeling or something like that. Well, no, it was no. This was there were no albums. This was a forty-five. Yeah, this was like you know. Anyway, we were listening to it because we thought it was funny. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we thought this is a comedy record, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, his stuff in the late eighties, early nineties was. A comment. It was even. I mean, I know the theory oh, that you're talking to, but the, when it, it's just there's a strange nasal drone, and you realise that's him. It, it's not even intelligible yeah. in terms of the words. <laughs> well, so, I'll have to listen to it. I don't, I, I'm not familiar with. I mean, mostly, I like his early stuff. Yeah, so, obviously. So, yeah. I mean, the ditto. Um, but I had a friend who had some of that on CD that he would play, and then he'd play Grateful Dead. Now, we, we, and I've talked about this last on our last conversation, there was just a general cynicism associated with musicians that didn't tour Australia and thinkers that didn't tour Australia. <laughs> and the Grateful Dead didn't tour Australia. Look, ah, of, okay. of, my, of my, I mean, in terms of, um, you know, groups like Public Enemy and Ice-T and Ice Cube and the kind of stuff that I picked up when I went to Ralph Waldo Emerson Junior High in 1990, those groups toured Australia. You know, they would come literally to the town that I'm from. Money-grubbing <laughs> bastards. <laughs> no, but they they raised the bar associated with performance. To see international acts perform in Australia yeah. is yeah. completely unlike. It's like aliens. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, you would love them for yes. that. Yeah, absolutely. They, they came to see us. Exactly. Thank you. Yes. The Grateful Dead never did. Fuck. Um, Fuck those Aussies. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that struck they me. They don't like, have any good drugs down there, probably. Oh, well, <laughs> they would have been surprised if they would have come. But anyway, moving on from that. The thing that struck me about um, the dead was it's only when my wife told me that she was a deadhead, which was pretty blatantly obvious because she has a, a head skull yeah. tattoo on her back. Not particularly big, but, you know, uh, yeah. noticeable. Uh, I really, it was actually when we started living together that it really began, because she had a shrine, no, she had a shrine to Jerry that she 
took to the UK and we had when we were back here. And after the second year of being back in Vegas, I said, really, the shrine has to go. <laughs> it's, What's it's, wrong with the Jerry Garcia shrine? It was getting a bit milchewy. It was basically... My view with it was that he was an interesting character. He was someone who I think motivates some degree of respect. I mean, I think his, you know, his... his he's just a guy. Exactly. A, you know, he's just a guy who got damn lucky. Yes. <laughs> but having said that, I mean, my own view is if we... I, I would... I, if we had had... A Robert Johnson shrine, maybe uh, you know something associated with. How about an Igor Stravinsky? Yeah, exactly. You know, well, I've always liked. I've always liked. You can buy the hands, which has always struck me as the ultimate. Um, you know, to to have you know various hands of composers and these kind of things <laughs> it always struck me as the perfect way to actually do that. To have a shelf of hands of various con- composers, well, at least pianists, anyway. Yes. Yeah. Was- see, that's the thing is, I'm I'm really a classical guy, man. For me, it's Shostakovich and Stravinsky and Haydn, mm-hmm. and you know, mm-hmm. and there are a few modern. There are some modern composers too, and there's some—I mean, the, some of the Beatles stuff I love. Some mm-hmm. of the stuff and the Stones. Mm-hmm. Shit, how can you not? There's a lot of great music out there, yeah. but it, you know, the—I guess I just missed out on the Dead. You know, I don't think the the followers of the Dead were the music was always a format for a group of people to get together. It was like a party band. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's a social phenomenon. It it wasn't about music. It was about society. So for a period of time... How did they get that? See, that was a a powerful marketing tool. Mm. See, I need to do that with Gendo. (laughs) The the trick is you... And this is something I've thought about doing. If nothing more to do maybe five or six times and satirize on this very recording... But something that the open source community has started doing is just putting out there, I'm going to be at this pub on this particular date, and I will be at this pub on this particular date. They schedule their releases of the software so you can go and meet the developers in these locations. Yeah. I've thought about doing this with Model Rail Radio as well. I've tried to do it. I mean, I can do it when I travel to a place. But you're talking about, oh, yeah. It seems to me that's exactly what TeamSpeak or Skype is for, is to set aside a certain amount of time and say, listen, I'm going to be here every Wednesday from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock on this place. Now, you've got to go invent the software and all that. But anyway, I'll be there, and if you want to talk, I'll be there. Here's the problem. Having done this for Biota, I came to the Bay Area, not at my expense, but the expense of my employer, but still at a cost of time. Yeah. yeah. Sat before an audience of, I think, five or six people, because a majority <laughs> of the people who did listen in this part of the world knew they could get the podcast. Yeah. So why even turn up? Why drive for an well, hour? That's exactly to- the point. I don't see what the advantage to meeting in physical space is. The advantage- I mean, it's nice. I mean, it would be fun, mm-hmm. but if it costs money, if it's not efficient in a lot of other ways, then I'd think, screw it. It's very difficult to create a virtual movement of the kind that we both seem to be describing. Well, you're right. I think that component is important, and it needs to be, it needs to be part of, the, of, of it. But I think that's probably, that may be a later part. 
you know, when, when you got enough of a thing going online, then you can start talking about doing stuff in physical space. So Kevin O'Connor, a.k.a. KMO, had two quite successful, in terms of just bringing people out, couch surfing tours, one that he did across the East Coast and one that he did across the West Coast. <laughs> and that is another interesting phenomenon. Now, Kevin does it slightly differently. He has an NPR model with his podcast where he collects donations and announces the donations at the start of the podcast. He is now a podcasting professional. His donations actually pay for him to live. That's great. So my view is... Does he have commercials too, or does he totally do it on getting people to pay for it? It's an NPR model. Basically, PayPal has a subscription system where you can sign up for a couple of bucks a month, and after five years, you've realized you've paid a couple of bucks a month. Well, yeah, but whatever. I mean, but that's doable now, huh? Yes. And what he has done is basically cultivated... And he talks very candidly about the fact that he picks his guests specifically to appeal to his listeners. I well, mean, he constructs it. It's a paid-for Yeah, he's a providing a service. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I've, basically, from my experiences in Las Vegas, observing NPR the way I did, I've never been particularly sympathetic to the NPR model, but in terms of his ability, because once someone pays money for something, their relationship to the work is very different. Oh, absolutely. It's crucial. I mean, if... Even if it's just a dollar, it doesn't really make any difference, really. It's, it's getting them to step over the line. <laughs> so I have been unequivocally against this method up until now. And I don't think, honestly, and I've talked to my wife about this, I can see myself changing for what I do with audio podcasts. But certainly, in large part, through the exploration of things like this comic book, I'm interested in exploring, you know, options. Yeah. Well, listen, money is just... It's just part of the old system. You know, it's one of the ways things get done. It's one of the ways projects get produced. Mm. You know, in one way, it can be seen as a measure of how effective you are at at getting ideas into the world. You know, I mean, I don't like, I'm I'm still, that's part of the reprogramming I'm doing to myself this year is I've taken such a a nasty anti-capitalist, anti-business mindset from the 60s that really doesn't serve me anymore. The point is, I want to get the job done. I want to put information into the world. And in this world, that's one of the most important things. That's how it works. It is. You know, it sucks. I hate that, and I need to reprogram my thinking around it. But, you know, I've been trying to give it away for 30 years, and nobody's interested. <laughs> you know, it's just, well, I'm better at talking about it now than I was 30 years ago. But, but you know, it, if you want to get something done, it has, I don't know any other way to do it. So I started abstractly thinking about this problem uh, last night in terms of what, what had worked previously. And the funny thing is, when I started recording podcasts maybe six years ago, what I used to do was give away T-shirts. We, we are already beyond that point because we have more than a 1,000 listeners to this thing. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you see, when I started, when I started Ape Reality, I had, you know, 30, 40 listeners. And then it got to 100, then it, you know. But what we have now is already greater than that. 
I, I thought about, I mean, I've, I floated the Stone 8 podcast. Let's start charging everybody 10 bucks a month for this, or two fifty <laughs> per episode. Two fifty dollars Well, two, no, $8 a month. If you want to subscribe for the month, it's only $8, but two fifty per episode. I think that's fair. I think a majority of the people, well, certainly <laughs> those that have been in correspondence with us. I don't know. You, you obviously have a higher impression of our listener base than I do. I mean... <laughs> I don't have a clue. I'd love to. I wish some of these people would write to me. Let me just, just tell you guys, my uh, Skype username is Heron underscore Stone. And I'd appreciate it if you would, um, if you think any of this shit is even vaguely interesting, that you would uh, contact me uh, by text. And then maybe we'll even talk. Who knows? You're also very approachable on Facebook. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Facebook is a, is a no-brainer. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I yes and I'd love to talk to you guys. If there are people out – I'm a little surprised to hear that, that there are that many people listening to this. But if you think this is interesting and you've got some ideas or some questions or something that you want to talk to me about, please don't hesitate to do that. Peter Stimple, who's a listener to Model Rail Radio, who is also a Stone Ape listener, is a fascinating fellow. I mean, I, I actually, if the people that listen to this particular podcast on a regular basis, he is up there in terms of just a genuinely interesting professional person who, who no doubt could uh, probably invest the eight bucks a month into <laughs> newly formed cost. Full yeah, cost it's not that big a deal. There are yeah. a lot of people that that's just being reasonable. That's supporting something you like. Yeah, yes. a lot of people have more money than they need just to survive. I, that's that's part of me. That's part of something I still have to get used to. Because for most of my life, I've only had enough money to just just survive. That's it. Peter I've, Stimple owns a three D printer. He needs to be printing his AK forty seven. That's what he needs to get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's definitely on the bleeding edge here. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, okay, so I know of at least one listener that might be able to afford eight bucks a month. But well, yeah. My, that, my view that is... was a joke. Clearly. But let's just yeah. specify that again loudly for those that may be listening <laughs> and curious about when we became a for-profit enterprise. So, yes. Um, but it, it does beg the question. I mean, I think about, for example, what I tried to do with Field of Chaos two-plus years ago, which is now moving into this comic book project, I don't really get a sense of who actually purchased the book, but not a lot of people purchased the book. For all that I did, I probably gave away yeah. more physical copies and PDFs at yeah. a ratio of about six to one than what yeah. was actually sold. <laughs> and yeah. I think in well, is that a surprise to you? It, well, I don't, I'm never really sure about these things. Well, you never know. You're right. It might yeah. have been a bestseller, but... Uh... I don't think it could have been because the way in which bestsellers are created is so against what yeah. actually occurred. Well, sometimes things do go viral, though. I mean, there there are these weird sh things that just somehow catch on, but they rarely are connected with financial means. I mean, I think this is what. Well, yeah, that's but that's what, yeah. yeah. See, that's I yeah, yeah. That's the if you're worrying about making see making money is one thing. Putting ideas into the world is something entirely different now you can put them together if you want to but the idea of making money is a, a separate issue i'm still trying i'm working on that <laughs> that's exactly what i'm trying to figure out is how i can ethically uh make a living doing what i want to do 
in a way that satisfies my ethics, actually. I don't really give a shit about somebody else. But, uh, you know, like I say, I've got these hang-ups from the 60s about this stuff, and I've got to satisfy a really, really nasty critic in there. Mm. <laughs> yes. But I think I can do that. That's the thing is I, I don't think that's an undoable project, but that's part of what I need to go through in this sabbatical year is try to rethink things and how to put it together in some way that's going to work better than what I've been doing. So as you are nearly a third of the way through, do you get any... Through this year, you mean? Yeah. Do you get any sense of anything that has occurred in the first third? Well, fourth is... is, We just finished the third month, so uh, we are now just beginning the fourth month. So, uh, yeah. Well, actually, you know, I mean, I didn't realize that this was a sabbatical year until I was already a month into it. So that was... In fact, I was thinking about that earlier. It's so much nicer to realize that that I've got permission not to be doing any fucking thing at all. You know that that uh, I'm I'm taking the time off to rethink everything, and that means I'm spending a lot of time doing absolutely nothing. I'm not sure whether it's meditation or what it is, but it's it's um, being quiet and uh, observing my language machine. It's fascinating, <laughs> and I have no idea where it's going to lead. But it feels like it feels like this is going to be very helpful. Period. I think. So the fan mail that you and I received through the week was relatively critical of you. Oh, good! I'd love to hear that. I, it was sent to you as well. Let me just bring it up. So yeah. Yeah. It. Oh, good. Uh, well, good. No, of course, it's better to be loved and worshipped. <laughs> but I can tell. Any kind of response will be. Appreciated. So let us find Mr. Eddie. Critical of me? Yes. <laughs> Who How dare that? they? Who are these people anyway? Who, uh, they? Thank Who you do they think email. they Let me just see if I can <laughs> find the Lord Eddie is the fellow's name. Oh, that name sounds familiar. Apparently, to you me. Had, had spoken. Anyway, it, it begins Hi, Tom. Feels like I've known you for years, even though we've never met. That is just the best stalker introduction ever. This is just like the, <laughs> every stalker. I've known you. Yeah, we have a special connection. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. Lord Eddie, this yeah. isn't personal. I'm just making light of your introduction. A uh, couple of years ago, <laughs> I started listening to all Heron's podcasts and had some conversations with him. He's even spoken to you. Okay, yeah, yeah, I thought that sounded These days, more one-directional text-based, i.e. he emails you, but I hope to converse with him in a close future. (laughs) I'm writing this email to thank you for continuing your stone ape. I thought you'd stop podcasting with Heron, but hey, what do I know? You, sir, are a very good communicator. You listen, know where you're going to go, and don't lose focus on your red line. You've already talked about this, and there's probably not much new stuff I can discuss here in this email. Please do know one thing. You are in my top three of people I like to listen to, especially in combo with Heron. You stick to your ideas, but are flexible enough to jump into another reality, even if it is with scuba gear on, meaning not your natural habitat. 
Now that's a crap sentence, and please do not read my disclaimers below. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. he, he continues by saying, Keep working on Heron. I think I can kind of see where you're going on this, and I like it a lot. Forgive my brute language, but Heron is a bit rusty from the past three years. He knows this. He will receive this email too, by the way. <laughs> I think he's working on it, but you are one of the few linguistically smooth enough to be a good communicator and rust remover. <laughs> there can only be communications between equals, uh, to quote Harbard Selene in uh, Illuminati's trilogy, Robert Anton Wilson. You guys come close to being a good example of that since your ideas are different sometimes. Maybe we can talk one day. I'm very interested in your computer stuff, especially Noble Ape. We'll see. And then he lists who yeah. he is. Yeah, yeah, great. So that was from him. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Guy's very perceptive. <laughs> yes. I, I wish I had some older emails from the, the Noble Ape fans that would contact me periodically. I had one fellow called Melek Kutash, who was a Jordanian farmer, and he would mm. write me... He, he was a student of Wittgenstein, like not a... Student wow. of Wittgenstein, but he loved Wittgenstein. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah he was and, a student of Wittgenstein. Like, I'm a student of Wittgenstein. Yeah, yeah. not quite. He, he was really a student of Wittgenstein. I mean, this guy... Anyway. And he would write me these treaties. He would write me these ten-page-long, dense uh -huh. emails. Uh -huh. uh, he was a fellow who was... Effectively, is he still around, or what? He is, he, um, so he was about two years younger than I was. He basically was independently wealthy through his family's olive farm <laughs> he um they their land was the same land that john the baptist would baptize people on so there would always be pilgrims coming through as well sometimes even people from iraq coming through who were you know escaping the war yeah and he um he lived and he still does from all accounts i'm friends with his brother on facebook the thing with him was that he basically as many affluent uh, people do, had kind of an on-again, off-again relationship with mental illness or perhaps an acute diagnosis of his own state. Uh, he just needs to get his language machine reprogrammed, but well, go on. He needed, he needed to kind of get out and get laid, I thought. I mean, maybe <laughs> well, was, that always helps, yeah. yes. Yeah, it was more, more fundamental ape things that needed yeah. to be facilitated. Uh, he would travel, I mean, in his late teens he travelled, his mother was Greek and his father was Jordanian. So he would go to uh, Greece and Germany and these kind of places as a, in his late teens. But he really became a kind of homebody in his early 20s and began just reading, you know, copious quantities of a variety of different kinds of texts. He sent me yeah. a care package, which included a number of books that my father had given me, which he, he didn't know about, I mean, quite independently. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it was, uh, he was an interesting correspondent. I talked with him on maybe three or four podcasts, uh, of associated with No Belate, but he insisted that I take the audio down because he was very conscious of his unspoken English. He was, um, we shared a mutual friend who was interested in Biota, who was a, uh, a pharmaceutical salesman in Europe who contacted me periodically in quite harsh terms, just saying that um, Melek was like a bitter alcoholic. I never had any indication of him being 
um, you know, drunk in my communication with him. But yeah. certainly there were lots of photographs where, you know, alcohol was clearly present in the photographs. <laughs> and I mean, as yeah. someone who's completely teetotal, I, you know, I, I have the view that one can, you know, remove alcohol from, you know, one's existence in most circumstances. He basically had a kind of self-victim mentality, which ultimately through a lot of our correspondence was kind of focused. And then he would just stop. He would get on Facebook and have, you know, these, including when I lived in Las Vegas, actually, he had women who followed him in Las Vegas. And he had all these kind of strange online relationships with these women. Um, And then he went completely cold turkey from the internet. And my only communication with him now is through his brother, who works as a game developer in uh, Amman, Jordan, uh, Nibble Qtash. Uh, <laughs> the Qtash boys, you know, they were my wife. When she you know, it's amazing the- how interconnected the world is. <laughs> who knows who, yes. where? You know, again, I've started meeting people from all over the world. That's such a such a new. I mean, when I was a kid, it was just people in the neighborhood. Mm. You know, this is a whole different world now. Man, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Universally fucked up language machines. I mean, I think every culture is just basically. Oh, we got a, we got a, we got some work ahead of us. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt about it. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm really optimistic. I mean, I don't, I think it's. I mean, the, the only question is how ugly is the interim going to get? And it could get ugly, but the outcome seems pretty inevitable. A unified, uh, sensible planet. Because there isn't really any alternative. Hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. We can't go on the way we are. I mean, we are just destroying it. You know, it may be not quite as drastic as some people would try to make it be, but probably is. <laughs> you know, this is, this is not a game we can continue playing. Certainly. Certainly. So, Heron, this is the this is the period in the evening where I say that I'm fresh out of ideas. I'm just going through my list of possible topics. We didn't really explore concerts to the extent that I was hoping. So, um, now now we're in the free form part of the recording. Um, let's talk a little bit more about concerts. I mean, I imagine that aside from Zappa, you would have seen some concerts in your time. No, I wasn't really. I mean, I. I lived in Manhattan Beach during my rock and roll period, and there were two local clubs there that had some pretty good bands in them. But these weren't like big deal concerts. These Mm. were just good local bands where there would be a couple hundred people playing in a local nightclub. Mm. And that was pretty cool. <laughs> there was one. I didn't go this this first place very often because it was there was a band called Atley. And I don't know if anyone's ever even heard of them. That would be off to look this up on the internet. Anyway, their big thing, I guess, was that they were loud. <laughs> I went in there one time and I left. I could, my ears were ringing for like twenty minutes afterwards, and I uh, so I found another place that was much better. But I've been to Zappa things, and you know, it's funny. I was not a big concert goer. I went to Zappa things, and that was about it. So Wozniak and, oh, my mind's gone completely blank, a local Bay Area promoter who'd passed away by the time I knew Wozniak, had um, built an amphitheater, which is actually right by Google now. Uh, So when I knew Wozniak, we would go to concerts sometimes twice a weekend. Wow. Um, 
No, but, see, I was all. I see. I lived. I didn't have money for that. Yeah, well, I didn't either. But yeah. I got in through. <laughs> well, that helps. Yeah, uh, and it was quite a phenomenon because it would happen with the frequency where it, it, I never assumed that this would occur, but it was always. Like, you know, I'd had a Friday evening kind of came round and I made myself some dinner and, you know, I poured a long, tall glass of cold water and was getting to the bottom of it when the call eventually came. We're coming through, you know, we're picking you up. You're going to see the Go-Go's or you're going to see um, the Because that's a whole part of this this planet that I know nothing about except what I've seen in films and movies and... TV and stuff, yeah. It was a phenomena. I, I saw bet. probably more bands through that period of time than I could probably have imagined. My favourite concert was um, Beck and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And the Red Hot Chili Peppers I saw twice, and they were a phenomenal concert band. They really yeah. just really warmed up the crowd, and they each would, you know, move around on the various instruments. And yeah, they, yeah, yeah. they put on a real show and connected with their audience. They were a real, it's a theatre <laughs> thing. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. And Beck, for me, was just because I was a long-term Beck fan, the sight of him as, I guess he must be five foot nothing, just <laughs> frail, like a little boy, even though he was in his mid-twenties when I saw him perform. It was one of the concerts, Wozniak's uh, box was basically halfway up, um, with seating down and then the grassy knoll behind. And some hippie broads called out some abuse to me when I stood up and started dancing to Beck. So that was my recollection. I sat back down and just watched it in awe. <laughs> we actually came to Beck late, so I only saw half the set, but then the Red Shot Chili Peppers were on, I think, maybe one group afterwards. It was a, it was actually a series of concerts on that one evening, um, and yeah, he was on. But the Red Hot Chili Peppers I saw individually as well, and they were just a phenomenal concert. I mean, even I saw the Go-Go's and the B-52s, and the Go-Go's were really high energy, even they were more than a decade from their hits. The B-52s, they had to sit down on the stage. They were looking slightly more geriatric. But um, it made me realise that, you know, Belinda Carlisle, I don't know how old, I knew Belinda Carlisle through her solo career, I guess, in the early 90s. And by 2000, she could still command the stage. I mean, it was, you know... I also saw uh, the Bangles. I saw a wide variety of groups, actually, that were of my... youth. I couldn't get... So, periodically, there would be rap concerts there, and I really wanted to see some of these artists. I've never actually... There were rap concerts coming through now where I want to see some of the artists... I've never been to a rap concert, and I really do want to go see one, but unfortunately, Michelle has no interest in going to one. I'd need to go by myself. Um, but I used to, I mean, I used to DJ for funk and hip-hop groups, and I understand the whole production nature of a rap concert. Um, so, yeah, there have been things that I've wanted to go and see, and one coming up in the near future. Um, but, yeah, as, as a married man, I don't think I'll be able to go and see it, unfortunately. My wife has been to concerts, though. My wife is was interested in, like, a lot of the kind of female singer uh, concerts, and she went, I think she's seen Christina Aguilera and a few other, uh, you know, kind of soulful female singers. Um, I was, just before I left Australia, I was walking outside a Jewel concert, and Jewel was playing an open-air concert, and I was behind I like the wall her. walking past. 
Uh, and that was a phenomenon because it maybe uh, the whole period of leaving Australia was just so chaotic mm. because, you know, I just, you know, it was a major life turning point for me. And to walk past this dual concert being played, I thought, well, if dual can do it, I can probably do it. <laughs> just getting out of Alaska or Australia or wherever one was and, you know, doing what, when, what needed to be done. But yeah, I think, um, the phenomena of rock concerts is certainly something that, uh, you know, my wife and I share, but we just like yeah. different stuff. I went well, to a, a lot, of, lot bigger part of your life than it was of mine. Yeah, I, I went to a lot of classical performances as well. I both participated in and went to classical yeah. performances all the time. Um, I mean, through my childhood, I was part of Mahler's Eighth Symphony, which is like the Symphony of a Thousand, uh, which we actually did at like a local sports stadium. And, you know, I've done Handel's <laughs> Messiah and yeah. all this kind of yeah, stuff and various things by Britain and things like that as an active singing participant. Yeah. I've also... Yeah, you I've, can't really know... That's, you know, it's something that's always sort of bugged me. I think people say they love music, you know, but if you've never actually participated in music and actually <laughs> know it from the inside and have participated in it, yeah. you don't know shit. It's a participation you know, sport, really. Well, it's, yeah, whatever it is, yeah, there's just listening to it and going, oh, that's cool, man, I like that. You know, good, I'm glad you like it, but there's something so much more. This is where I really will get some hate mail, probably, for being such an elitist here. But uh, fuck you, know. what can I say? <laughs> I, I think you've already portrayed yourself. I mean, my view is... Yeah, the, I, we all know I'm an elitist. That's right. People I listen to you for your elitism, Aaron. That's right, you know. okay, yeah. They don't know enough people like you. I mean, this is the thing. <laughs> I know plenty of people like you, so it's, you know, mildly... You know, mildly, um, I don't even know what the right term would be, maybe distasteful to me, but to folks in the general population that don't know any, you know, linguistic elitists, you you are, you know, a thing in and of itself. For them. <laughs> well, that's, see, that's, well, you're right, of course. I mean, that that's what we're talking about here, folks. We're talking about language monkeys. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is really offensive to some people. That's right. If you're really offended by me and you don't see any humor in what I'm doing, then you are a language monkey and probably shouldn't. Well, no, you should be listening because maybe we can infect you and wake you up from your trance. But uh, it's a pretty good, you know, if you think I'm just an arrogant asshole, <laughs> you're right. You shouldn't waste your time here. So let me read a bit more from The Origin of Mind. Uh, the original narrative engine implementation offered by Mottram had the limitation of just a single narrative. The noble apes had this narrative both internally and externally, uh, sorry, both internally and communicating this narrative externally, uh, and it existed as a single entity. I noted that this method didn't capture the radicalization or an ability to exist in a society held on independent beliefs. Barb Landstone, 2011. It was critical to have an internal and external narrative. These two narratives needed to be quite distinct. In the current narrative engine, each noble ape has an internal and external narrative uh, that is a stream of bytecodes. So this had already changed over the period of time that this was being edited because Bob Mottram added multiple internal narratives mm. um, in order to kind of set the stage for... Um, you know, deities. Let me ask you something. Yes. Because I think one of the critical things here is within the internal narrative mm -hmm. of an ape, 
as an object in that internal narrative is the presence of another ape or mm-hmm. another yes. few apes. And yes. so there has to be this reflexive thing that those apes show up as part of the model, the internal model of its environment within within each ape. So they each exactly. mirror. In a sense, each ape is almost everything but it itself. So this was a, this was a big <laughs> thing in, in Bob's implementation. I mean, you've got to appreciate, aside from writing Noble Ape, he also listens to us. So, oh, he's listening to this stuff? Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, good. So, Hi. Yes, it is one of these uh, strange things that basically everything that you and I have put out in recorded form, Bob has... So there actually in. is a community forming here, isn't there? Uh, the, the nature of community is so remote in terms of the individual well, entities that participate in this thing in yeah, one way but there or are another. S- there, there are a couple of people who are listening to this and doing some thinking. Yes. That's good enough for me. And producing things from that. I mean, if yeah, it was that's just even better. Yeah. Yes. Well, be I'll, just, I'll just take thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm easy. <laughs> it is one of these strange things that if you put ideas out there, and particularly if you have mechanisms for people to contribute, then, and this is non-financial contribution, this is intellectual contribution, then yeah. you will find these things come together. Well, that's what I'm betting on, that, that this is... Inevitable in a sense. This is Earth moving to its next phase, and it's all preordained just like the development of an embryo is. We all sit around here and talk about free will. That's all nonsense. Uh, you know, everything is just moving according to the way this planet turns into whatever the hell it's going to become next. So as Noble Ape develops, as it develops in terms of the description of like internal and external language and spoken language and narrative language which writes itself out as an English form. Mm-hmm. Does this sound some, like something you might be interested in actually Oh, I'm definitely, in, oh, I'm absolutely interested in it. You bet. So, I mean, I could certainly record a couple of YouTube videos associated with how this thing manifests itself currently. Here's the interesting point that I'll put back to you, Heron, and yeah. I don't in any way want to motivate you to actually do any investigation or work with Noble Ape, but I will <laughs> put this to you. Yeah. The Interface is something that has been defined by my experience and Bob Mottram's experience and a certain level of technical minimalism that we both embody in our implementations, one of the reasons Mm. that we work well together. This does not have to be the interface that you have to endure. In fact, what you can do through initial interaction (laughs) is make very keen and no doubt concise judgments associated Listen, let with what me just, you want to see. Let me just tell you that I'm. if you want to bring up some specifics of it, uh, and we can talk about it, and I can fire up the software and, uh, and follow you in some stuff, I will certainly, uh, I'm willing to do that. Let's plan on doing that maybe when we next converse. Because I'm certainly not currently. I could present. No, you, you should think. No, no, you should but think. I need to about consider this. it. Yeah, 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 I need yeah, to right. consider this. And yeah, uh, yeah I think I, from from what I know, like I say, I have never been inspired. I've explored it a couple of times and just given up. You know, just I couldn't. I couldn't get to anything that was interesting for yes. me. And I think that's been something that I've certainly been mindful of, even in adding the bytecode narrative now on the screen in certain circumstances and these kind of things. So, I mean, I'm certainly very mindful of that. In order to get to some of these components... Have you just considered making it a first-person shooter? 
I did. That was actually how I got the original funding for Noble Ape. Yeah. Was actually creating a first person. Become one of these apes. And there were projectiles. In fact, the first game that I developed or developed in demo form was what was called Escape from Nevada. Wait a minute. You know, I'm just getting blown away thinking of the possibilities of a first person, not a shooter, but a first person thinker. Yes. (laughs) Well, that was, I mean, look at, for example, Second Life, because I spent an amount of time working with Second Life, the Second Life engine, to try and get that you know, competent as well. The first game, however, was a first-person shooter. You played uh, one of uh, half a dozen uh, U.S. Marines that had landed on this island, and you had to uh, investigate with your bullets the noble apes. (laughs) Uh, And that was something that I actually floated to the Australian Film Commission because you could... The apes had a means of survival and, you know, utilizing... What you could do is explore the development of uh, the movement of the internal mapping to the communal mapping. Yes. You know, because that's really... That's really, listen to me. That's (laughs) the way I see it. That's uh, what made humans. You know, that's the difference between a monkey and a human. Is that monkeys have very good maps, but they, they don't share them vocally. Yeah, they don't have communication. Yeah. So there are half a dozen YouTubes that I've already recorded that explain this in both text and graphical form with mm-hmm. English language. So there's the nature of episodic memory that just gives a kind of English narrative to what is going on. Yeah. Um, however, I don't think... I mean, certainly there is an element that will give you a level of detail there, but I think I probably need to invest about half an hour more or more with you going through the various aspects, and I need to do it in a yeah. way... Probably, I'll leave that totally up to you. Yeah, because you know me, and you know the project. I don't know shit, so um, the easiest way to do this is actually to do it through some shared video method, which I've got to think about, so you can actually see my screen as I go through it. Because giving you the keyboard control and these kind of things is going to be more problematic, and I've got to think about what kind of software exists in order to do that. There's no. Certainly, I don't care. I got plenty to keep me busy, but this sounds interesting. Ah, when so what you're I ready. can do is there's a program called uh, VNC, which would enable me to, or you to, or I suppose for to us to exchange our desktops. Yeah, right? it's just yeah. show what was going on, and we yeah. could we could work okay. from there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, and basically, you want me to watch something in real time with you? And no, it's probably we'll better that I do. It's probably better that I. The, the, it is on your desktop, or if we find some agreement, something like that. I mean, if it's just me watching a YouTube video, I mean, that's not, easy enough. Yeah, that's know? not really the kind of interaction that I want, but it could be initially. I mean, that could yeah. give you the initial introduction. Yeah. Well, well, I'll let you work out the detail. You always handle all this stuff. See, I just show up and you tell me what to do. Yeah, and no doubt in a week's time I will have completely forgotten this and have a series of <laughs> squirrely topics for us to go through, and well, you won't remember either. Well, it's all, yeah, no, I certainly won't remember because people say all sorts of shit and most of it means nothing. So I don't take any talks very seriously, you know. When, when something actually happens, then that gets my attention. Mm. So, Heron, I'm probably going to have to cut this thing off at this point. It's actually both hot and I'm tired as well. So I have a strange combination of wanting to open the windows and hurt the cats away and probably have an early night. My wife is um, 
staying out till all and sundry as she does on a Friday night. But um, yeah, this evening I'm. I this works out perfectly then. Yeah, we've had a long, way. long we conversation. Have, we've here. had a good chat. We've had a good yeah. chat. Yeah. Anyway, well, until this time next week, Karen, you take care. Good night. See you.